0: Before we get started, I just want to apologize ahead of time with this particular episode because when Mark came on, which we're so grateful that he was able to join us this week for two weeks in a row, that we had some computer issues, like usual, some internet issues that caused some feedback. So it got a little staticky at times. I did my best to reduce that as much as possible for you so it's not too terrible to the ears. So I just want to let you know, fully aware of it. So sorry. Kept him in because his message and his content was incredibly valuable. And I hope you still enjoy the episode. Okay. Let's get into it. You're listening to the pandemic podcast. We equip you to live the most real life possible in the face of these crises. My name is Matt Bodker, and I'm joined with my two good friends. Yes, two weeks in a row. This is huge. Dr. Stephen Kissler, an epidemiologist at the Harvard School of Health, our favorite epidemiologist, and Dr. Mark Kissler, a favorite doctor in the state of Colorado and the United States and maybe the whole entire world at the <laughs> University of Colorado Hospital. Dr. Mark, Dr. Stephen, how you doing, guys? Hey. Doing all right. <laughs> <laughs> we're now getting choppy with Mark and we're losing him altogether. Oh, uh, well, yeah. So, Ch- Mark is pretty choppy and getting kind of staticky for some reason. This goes back for those of you who went to last week. That fiber optic fund would go fund me. This just cements the whole thing in. So, welcome everyone to the Pandemic Podcast. This is another great episode, number 66. We've got a lot to cover. Uh, a couple small things, obviously. If you want to support us, we greatly appreciate that at patreon.com uh, slash pandemic podcast. Those are $5 a month can go a long way. Can help. One time gifts are well received at Venmo and PayPal all in the show notes. Now, Stephen, it's just you and me right now until Mark Mike gets back. But so this is crazy. So this is the week of my birthday week, which I'm not trying to do that for like self. Like happy birthday. Yeah, thank you, thank you. (laughs) But it was a big milestone. Yes, I turned 42, now I'm turning 43. But March 11th, which is my birthday, is known not so much for my birthday by the world, but the day by which the WHO declared coronavirus a pandemic. And this was like, I remember, I remember like literally in my, yeah, on my birthday, realizing I can't go anywhere. On that day, things radically shifted. And so what I did is I pulled a couple things. So I use Evernote, to have all of our clipped articles and just searched March 11th. And they're just like, we got like 50 articles showed up on this one that, you know, the WHO declared a pandemic on March 11th. Oh yeah, the Atlantic says on March 11th, 2020, the coronavirus pandemic seemed to crystallize in the national consciousness, which it did. Another one, I loved hearing all of, oh, this is from Kirsten from last week. She actually referenced March 11th in her own email to us last year because that was the day by which they shut down her own program. The NBA froze the lottery on that day. Trump announced the European travel ban on March 11th as well. Even Denmark, things shut down on March 11th. So this was a big day this week. I think now we're kind of coming full circle and revisiting now, the first time, almost like I had this app called day one, Steven, I love to get it. like a journal <laughs> app that it's, it'll say on this day. And then it'll repeat, like, this is now for the next like few months, we're going to have like on this day, right? How life changed <laughs> dramatically. Guess. Yeah. It's just so crazy. So crazy. So I found that fascinating. So I will be having my second pandemic birthday, which not everyone has been able to, I guess, quote, enjoy, but I would say that with tongue in cheek. So, but luckily it will be a little bit less uh, intense as last March. Okay. Let's, let's hit a couple of things, Stephen. The first is we have two really good questions from our listeners. So first one is from Carla. Now, number one, I'm going to open this up right now because she actually, about two weeks ago, it was two weeks ago, Stephen, or, or less, no, or it could be more. I talked about how my, some of my family read in the news about, oh, the vaccine only lasts three months and we couldn't figure out where it was from. Carla was awesome. She listened to our podcast and then suggested that she might know the actual answer to this. And that is, she says that the CDC recommendation at that point in time was that three months post-vaccine, you don't need to test or quarantine If you're exposed, but after three months, then it's a different perspective. And I'm guessing now, I don't know if you have any feedback to that, Stephen, of why they would suggest that. So my, my, my layman's guess is that because the vaccine has been out for roughly three months, we know it's, it's effective for at least that, but we don't know as time begins to move forward. Do you have any other ideas of why the CDC would recommend just three months before we have to get tested again after having the vaccine?
1: Yeah, I think, uh, right. It's Part of it is just because of the length of time that we've had the vaccine. Part of it is what we know about immunity to respiratory viruses generally and to coronaviruses in particular, where we know that the immunity to the other coronaviruses that we know of can decline over time. We know that you can get reinfected with some of the common cold coronaviruses after a year. And so presumably there's some point prior to that where some proportion of the population will be able to be reinfected as well. Cause there's, there's a distribution, right? Some people will be protected yeah. for longer, some people for less time. And so essentially what they're probably trying to do, I mean, it's, it's, it's rough. It's probably just a rule of thumb, but they, you know, somebody at the CDC decided that about three months was probably, a safe period of time where you could be pretty confident in the immunity that you got from a natural okay. infection, but after that, given everything we know, all of these different types of information, then it probably makes sense to get tested. Now, of course, the, okay. I mean the other the other thing that's weighing into this is is not just the the epidemiology and the science, but but the the nature of the thing that they're asking you to do anyway, right? It's it, it's a test, which is not a particularly invasive sort of thing, right? So if if they were saying you know that you had to undergo like some <laughs> painful, like preventive treatment or something, then then they'd probably revisit that and try to get a lot more solid data around that. Mm-hmm. But part of the reason it hasn't been investigated as as closely is because also of what's on the other side, which is asking for something that, that is for for most people is sort of a minimally invasive event. And so all of those things sort of come together to give us what we've got, I think.
0: Okay. That makes sense. Helpful. That was just the first part of Carla's just helping us to understand why my family may have read something like that and kind of came to the conclusion. But the other part was a deeper question. And this was about the idea of okay, she is living in Michigan. Apparently, it's pretty intense. They're just now opening up restaurants at 25% capacity, but she's just confused because they have less than 10 per hundred thousand cases. There are not value is like at 0.88, so there's below one. There's a, there's you know what else? What there's going on? There's some other things going to show that there's 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 they're doing pretty well, but yet they're just still so enclosed. And we're seeing this all over, right? We're seeing this with Texas, and they're they the the one of the first. Biggest states to just undo mask rules and those kind of things. So we're seeing even California having more open options. How do we deal with this, Stephen? Like, I don't know what's the best response because some people are thinking, see, this is this is gonna go on forever. We're we're doing better, cases are plummeting, but we're still being forced to wear masks. There's no rational explanation for this because it's things are great and they continue to be great. So what's the science behind this? And I again I think I'm guessing I'm going to hear from you is that it's complicated, right? But <laughs> at the same time, is there some kind of measure by which we can say, yeah, what you did, Colorado, what you was was a good move. What you did Texas was actually totally imprudent at this point in time not just because of oh crap there's a scariant which there was there was an article about that 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 was kind of funny i love that word scariant right but but because mm-hmm. of this science this data it is best for us to continue this kind of measure right so can you give us help us understand and see where we're at is there any way we could, by which we can have some measurement to see when we can begin to open up more and more
1: yeah i mean this is this is one of those areas where science and culture really intersect in important ways so in terms of the the science and the epidemiology, you know, there there are a lot of different reasonable measures that one can take. But I think one of the consistent stories with this pandemic and any pandemic or emerging infectious disease really is that early action and swift action and especially strong action when cases are low can pay dividends in the future. I mean, I think that that by and large, I think, is the story that we can learn, for example, by the difference between our experience in Australia and the United States. You know, it it, wouldn't... Setting aside all of the many, 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 many differences between the two countries and their demographics and their, you know, different types of interconnectivity, you know, though that really captures, I think, some of the difference in response. And again, not just in Australia, but many other countries who. Decided to have sort of swift, strong measures to prevent the spread of cases while they were very low, versus having some tolerance for cases, allowing to allowing them to spread, and then ending up sort of needing longer term mitigation measures, much like we've seen in much of the U.S. So, I think that you know, again, there there are as this intersects with 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 culture, there there are cases to be made for different different approaches. And you know, it's some of the having having businesses closed and I think that especially can be can be very restrictive and really affect people's livelihoods. And that, that does have to be balanced against a certain amount of infectious disease risk. And I think the most important thing is that when we're making these decisions, we're thinking not just about now, but about two weeks from now and two months from now. And so that it's in that context that I think some of the decisions, for example, like are being made in Michigan can be a little bit more easily rationalized. We Right now, I mean, we have some modeling evidence, but especially, you know, it's just crazy how familiar some of these stories seem, you know, like you said, we're coming back on a year from when the pandemic first started spreading. And a year ago, there was a lot we didn't know about the coronavirus, but what we did know was that was the experience in Wuhan and the experience in Italy, for example, where we saw that it really could spread explosively and and cause a lot of a lot of damage. And and that's what we're beginning to see with the variants too. I mean, we saw in the UK, that it could cause explosive spread. And now it's really starting to take hold in different countries in Europe as well. And so we we have evidence that the new variants that are spreading can cause this these kinds of really major surges that require much stricter sorts of interventions in the future. And the only way we know how to how to sort of Stop that from happening is is to have relatively strict action now, so it's 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 tricky. But I think that that's really that's the best way that I can think about it is no matter how things look now, we know that things that that as we've seen for the whole course of the pandemic, things can change so quickly, so rapidly. And I think that some of the places that have, are adopting stricter measures now are probably doing so to try to heat off some of that, some of those uh, bad outcomes that could happen in the future.
2: Yeah, you know, I think I just wanted to kind of jump in on the end of that, because I think one of the points that I hear a lot in casual conversation is like, you know, can we look at these case studies in individual local places and decide and say, well, see, here's evidence, you know, that the decision was good or the decision was bad or the decision that we, you know, we should prioritize the economy or we should prioritize public health and looking for vindication in these local stories. And I think that's something that we've been, you know, really consistently and cautioning against because there's so much geographic variation. There's so many, as Stephen was alluding to, just so many different factors in each of these places that we really need to look um, at bigger, broader historical trends, bigger epidemiologic data, and not necessarily look from individual place to individual place for that small you know, evidence that often I think is used to justify one's own sort of pre-existing point of view about you know this is this is how we should operate or see it's not so bad or see it's a lot worse than we thought and so just you know continuing to to be able to traverse between the local and this kind of global broader scientific view is super 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 that's important. a good
0: point absolutely and it's such just realizing that That it's it's a it's a really big grayscale. It's not like a switch where like it's on or it's off. And that makes it all the more complicated. You know, look at Michigan and twenty-five percent allowing for restaurants versus maybe fifty percent. Could they do fifty percent versus twenty-five percent? I'm sure that's a very valid discussion. (laughs) But like that's like I mean, uh, that's that's just a part of it, right? I mean it's 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 the fact of the matter, we have to take measures. It's not a black and white switch, and so whether one state is doing fifty percent and the person twenty-five percent, that that there's nothing about a grave disjustice. It's just a matter of a nuanced understanding of how we how we deal with this, right? It's hard. It's complicated. And then bringing in Stephen Osterholm in the whole mix, where again he came back on, talked about how we think he thinks that we're in the eye of the hurricane. So this is in the midst of this same discussion. And I want to throw this back to you because you've been more cautiously optimistic, cautiously optimistic, and and Osterholm is more cautiously. Paralyzing. I don't know how to say it. Where he just he's he's very much emphatic that that we're, we're we're upcoming. We're getting into a hard spot. So he mentioned he believes we're in the eye of a hurricane. He said, "Hey, look. Last time I was on this, I forgot what, what he was on. You know, the very was had, had hold of the U.S. by about seven or maybe three seven ten percent." Now, three weeks later, it's now 30 to 40% as a whole of the US. It's not going to be long before it's over 50%. Hey, look at the countries that have over 50% of the variant going, going across itself. They're in bad spots right now. So that is his litmus test for we're approaching a pretty hard spot in a matter of weeks, maybe. Can you speak into that about how his 50%? Cause I know again, he's probably. Maybe only has 10 minutes, so he's not being a nuanced approach. You have a little more time to do that. That, Like you just said, like Mark just said, countries are different. We're different. And there's reason to maybe feel like that maybe after the 10.50%, it may not be like other European countries who are being sucked into the variant. Can you speak into this a little bit, this dire situation by Osterholm?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's. I mean, I think that I... <laughs> Anytime Michael Osterholm speaks, I, I I listen up. You know that's that, that, that's the first thing that I want to say is, yeah, you know, he's absolutely you know leading expert in all of these things, and so I, I I take what he has to say very seriously. Anytime that he he does say something, so so I I don't so much want to place myself you know against what he's having to say, but maybe to fill out some some nuance into like why well what I imagine things might look like from from my own sort of experience with with the pandemic and related things. So first thing is that again, sort of casting our minds back to what was happening about a year ago, we were really concerned about huge increases in coronavirus cases across the country. But of course, they happened very locally. And they happened in different places with different severities at different times. Each part of the country sort of had their own period of time when they were in the spotlight. And I wouldn't be surprised if something very similar happens with the variant, where we don't necessarily see a massive unified surge that just overwhelms the United States as a whole. But there will be particular cities, particular communities that will have a very hard time grappling with the variant. And we just don't know which ones those are yet, because there's so much about this that is random, that's driven by super spreading, that happens to be, you know, just a place that has low underlying immunity at the moment, and uh, just gets in at the right time in the right community. And so, so we can't really predict where those places will be. So on, on a local level, I, I think it's true that, that we're, we're entering a period of time that is a lot more uncertain. Than we've been in, and so I think that's really worth some caution. Now that said, some things that distinguish the situation that we're in from from some of the countries that have seen a lot of spread of these variants in Europe, for example, first that the time of year is different. I've mentioned this before. I really think that, and I've reflected on this. I, you know, while last year I was, you know, and this was borne out by the data too. But one of, one of the key things of some of the modeling we did was that COVID was going to spread in the summer. That the summer weather wasn't going to take yeah. it away. And that was that was absolutely you know, true. That said, I think that I have. I think that the the seasonal force, the 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 change in the virus's ability to spread by time of year, is still powerful. And this year, we're in a, in a different situation where we have a lot more underlying immunity. We have a lot of people getting vaccinated. And so again, it, it won't go away but i think that that'll help prevent some of the major surges that we've seen in some other countries as well and likewise this is this is not necessarily good but we have had a ton of spread in the united states some groups expect that you know 20 to 30% of the us population has been infected with covid which is a lot higher than many other places and then you layer on top of the vaccinations in addition you know we're still a far cry away from herd immunity but that does slow things down a bit, and it does seem like previous infection and vaccination do seem to be effective to some degree at preventing at least illness, if not transmission. So I think all of these things are sort of conspiring together where we are entering an uncertain time and there will be places that see real surges from the variant but but i i I don't I don't anticipate that it will necessarily be a major surge like we saw this winter. I really hope not. It could be you know there's there is a possibility that it could be, but i I synthesizing what I, what I know and what I've seen, I I don't imagine it'll be like that across the country as a whole.
0: Great. That's good. And it's, I mean, it's kind of what I'm feeling as well. I'm feeling hope. I mean, again, mine's just intuition, right? I'm not anything based on science, but I'm hopeful that this is going to be the case. We're going to continue to see declines and maybe some hotspots here and there. This is a follow-up to this, because we talked about how Texas has released a masking for the for the state. The CDC has advised this maybe not be the case. This is our second question, and we can open up to this. And I want to kind of start with Mark. Now, it sounds like he might be staticky. I can kind of hear, but we'll see in just a second. Because this comes from, oh, if I say your name correctly, and first of all, Carla, thank you so much for the question. I love it; it's really helpful. This one comes from uh, Mora, Mariah, Maura, I'm sorry if I spush your name. I'm terrible with names. I think I mentioned that in the previous episode. I'm really, really bad. She talks about how I'm going to pull this up here. I think it's fascinating. Where she, her husband, went to a doctor's appointment. That's why I'm going to start with you, Mark. And I'm just, I'm just, I can't believe this is still going on. But it, of course, it is. It's a complicated situation. And then. Her, she went to, he went to the doctor, and then the doctor tried to convince him that masks are not, uh, they don't work. I put that in quotations work. And that, in fact, he would take the next step to actually send an email to him to give articles about showing the proof that masks just don't work, right? Again, quotation, what work really means. I think that needs to be unpacked. I consulted to you, Stephen and Mark, and we got some articles. I'm going to send that to her as well. But I want to start with you, Mark, on this idea of like, this is a doctor, right? You're a doctor. And not just your observation, but who you work with. Are there people, there were doctors that you work with who, are you guys in disagreement about masks? Is this like a, because I mean, this is not the first time I've heard at least two other doctors doctors say that masks don't work in my small network of people who go. So I'm like, is this an epidemic or among doctors? Are you since in the hospital or is this just a weird anomaly that I'm just being, we're being gravitated toward these 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 kinds of people?
2: <laughs> oh man, <laughs> I, don't, I don't even know where to start. I, you know, I think <clears throat> this is, this is tricky. Am I coming yep, through okay? I know so far I had some static issues earlier. You know, Okay, so there's a couple things there. This is this is sort of a meaty question I think in terms of some of the meta issues that we've been talking about over the last year on this podcast. So, number 1 is I think just for me just a reminder to be patient around this mask question yeah. because in a lot of ways this is one of the things that I think has been settled by the science for quite some time. And I think that there was a, a big disadvantage because of early communications particularly from the CDC in which they were Urging the public to not wear masks in the very, very first weeks of the pandemic because there was a concern about the supply chains in the hospitals. And I think that that initial recommendation was really deeply damaging to the sort of the public communication around masks and their utility. And part of that was because they were saying that a cloth mask does not prevent uh, you from getting COVID. And there's You know, there may be a slight reduction in the viral load that you receive, but sure, you know that's that you know potentially is the case. There are better masks to be used to prevent the spread, both the droplet and the aerosol mechanisms. The thing is, is that cloth masks and any masks do significantly reduce the amount of virus that you put out into your local environment. And so, from the beginning, I think the most compelling argument for masks is one of communal responsibility and essentially of good stewardship of everybody else's health. You know, as we've talked about the one of the big things that's been hard is this is transitioning from a point of view of how do I prevent from getting sick to how do I prevent this illness from spreading deeply into my community and often to people that I don't ever see or interact with. And so this is, you know, it, as somebody who works in the hospital, over and over and over again, the people that I'm caring for are very, very often the disadvantaged folks of our communities. They are people who don't have homes. They're people who live in nursing homes, group homes. They're they're the invisible people, you know. They're the indigent population, not exclusively. You know, everybody everybody's at risk, but it's often the, those people who we don't see. You know, we being. You know, I'm, I'm presuming you know a lot of the people who are having these these conversations about masks that we're interacting with, who are deeply affected, but nonetheless by our behaviors. You know, for me, this is one of the most compelling arguments for corporate responsibility, and just like visible signs of like how do I care in a deeply physical way for the people in my community who need that care, and so. So yes, I I feel it as a group of personal <laughs> frustration that that they're you know that they're physicians who are still throwing casting doubt on this claim and you know it, sure we can get into you know what does it mean for a mask to work you know and are are you having a conversation around like is a mask going to prevent 100% of the time from you, you know, Matt Bodker getting infected with COVID, fine, we can have that conversation. But I think I want to shift the discourse around masks. I've, you know, I've wanted, (laughs) I've wished that the discourse around masks would have shifted over and over and over again through this whole pandemic, because I just don't think that's the point. And so, okay, so that's my, that I'll I'll deal with, you know, my emotions around that particular issue, you know, off, off here. (laughs) I think the other question is, what do we do? What do we do with the sense of like, well, I heard it from a doctor, you know, and you know, of course, on some level, you know, we we want to be able to trust our physicians. There's sort of this esteem that we give, you know, and I think most of the time these are medical doctors that are making this recommendation, right? And I think you know something else that I've been thinking a lot about in the course of this pandemic is the degree to which physicians are also human beings in like this like primarily <laughs> right in this super super important way to remember and i think it's funny because there's and i and i appreciate this i'm grateful for this there's this sense of sort of valorizing the physician you know there's the sense of this heroic narrative of of the physician of physicianhood and i and by physician by i really mean clinician i mean you know nurse practitioners advanced practice providers i mean pharmacists nurses anybody involved in clinical care. So I, I don't mean to be exclusive in that. It's just that being said, I think there's a way that that heroic narrative can let us forget the ways that we're deeply fallible, you know, that we're dealing with our own stuff, that we've got our own, you know, interests and worries and preoccupations and foibles <laughs> you know, and prejudices and <laughs> blind spots All of that is also true. And I think so, you know, we've got we've just got to record, you know, our our docs are also people and our docs are probably going to say silly things sometimes. And I'm going to say stupid things, you know, and we've got to keep going back to the broader evidence here. As far as I'm concerned, the evidence around masks is more than settled, and I think that the articles that Stephen you know provided, and we can put in the show notes, are really helpful to having those conversations. And it it just it's one of those things that I think that we have to be really consistent in our messaging, particularly because of the inconsistency early in the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Consistent, clear, you know, gentle, but firm. This is something yep. we've got to do, and it maybe we have to be maybe we have to do it for a while. And it really, really matters to other people, even if it doesn't matter, you know, to you and your individual health.
0: Absolutely. Well, well said, Stephen. Do you have anything to add to this whole thing? I, I mean, for you, I'm sure on your end, it's it's like a closed door. This is not even a discussion piece because you're probably not even run into this kind of reality. Correct?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's maybe amongst my colleagues for sure, but but I, but there are a lot of conversations, like like you said, like with with people who are maybe one step removed with with friends and acquaintances where where it is really similar it's like you know what's what's the point of this and yeah so i don't i don't really have anything to add yeah. other than that i've yeah i share that experience and some of that frustration
2: can I, I i might just go out on a limb real quick and just speculate here i know this is dangerous to to speculate in public but i one of just, just FYI F-Y you're getting a little staticky uh, and
0: choppy but keep going
2: there's just a little blip on the internet. So I think, you know, one of the things I want to just speculate about a little bit, and like I said, I don't know if this came through, but I know it's dangerous to kind of speculate in public here, but I'm, I'm curious to hear what you guys think. I think that one of the difficulties throughout with masks has been how visible um, they become and how quickly they become subsumed into other discourses around the pandemic. And, you know, I think there's a strong sense that people feel if the masks are gone, we're through it, it's over you know, we, we made it. And there's this sense of, you know, victory and restoration of normalcy and all this stuff that is symbolized in taking off the masks. And so I think that we just have to be aware of the fact that sometimes we're having a different conversation than we think we're having. And I think anytime we're talking about masks, that's almost hundred percent of the time. Is we're actually having another conversation and we seem to be having a conversation about masks, but it's actually about something else. And so I think that you know, I, I'm really sympathetic to that that restitution narrative, right? This sense of like I want things things were fine, they got bad we had an intervention and now they're good again. We're back to normal. And, but I also think that there's just very few um, times in the reality, in the messiness, especially in the messiness of a global pandemic, when a restitution narrative is actually the most appropriate narrative that we have. And so as much as we want to, you know, be liberated and go back exactly to how things were, I just think that that's, there's, there's so much uh, that we have to talk about around that.
0: Yeah. I think that's great. Yeah. I, I mean, the, uh, like a storyline is just not linear uh, and it just, it's just, that's not how reality is. And it's the, the fatigue that's going on, the desire, to, like you said, to not wear a mask, what it symbolizes, the alignment of that and all that kind of stuff. So my, my picture just went away. And so yeah, is loaded. There's a lot of things and it, it, the great moral of the story is that we just have to sit with them and, and just help them understand. Like, I get it. Like, I don't want to wear a mask either. It's a, it's a, it's, a, it's, it's really frustrating. At the same time, it's a low bar. To, to, to be able to help prevent the number of cases. So uh, I hope those resources are available, I mean, are, are useful. I'll put those in the show notes. They're great that Stephen and Mark, and I had a couple of ones from earlier that Stephen and Mark sent to me a few months ago that I had archived. I put those in there as well. Let's move into the word scariance again, this great article from The Wired about how uh, we're getting a little too maybe hyperactive to variants. So there is definitely some grounding for being concerned about the variants. And there's a lot of hype around this as well. In the midst of this, I want to throw it back to you, Stephen, because I learned something in this article that it's not just so much about doing genetic testing. That's a really great first step, but there's this whole other area, which I think is going to be open up to Pandora's box of other questions I have that are related of that, there is variant characterization, which is a whole other subset of information. And so the reason why I want you to talk about this, Stephen, is I think it's going to help put some ease to people, especially when you keep hearing like, oh, California variant. And here, the it's, uh, we give it a test and it doesn't affect, it. the antibodies don't work from natural immunity. And so now we're getting scared and we're getting nervous. And then we heard another article or another research being done uh, that showed that that's not the case. It's more complicated. It's not just antibodies. And so we need a good variant characterization to see the complexity of this stuff, what's going on. It doesn't happen overnight. You know, the, it's one thing to get the genetic testing that there is a variant. I'm sure that's relatively quick if we have the right resources, but the characterization of it, what it actually implicates, what it actually infects is a longer story that needs more time to develop. So can you help? Because you've been doing some. you're about ready to do some study about this with New York. So can you talk about what you're about ready to do with New York and how this kind of help us understand between the, the actual testing and then the characterization process?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So with the variants, I think that we're again in this interesting time where the the public and the scientific community are learning at the same time. Mm you know we're we're trying to figure this out we're and so i i think you know some of the work that that we've been thinking about with respect to the variants are really just how exactly do you bridge that gap that you just mentioned you know you can do genetic sequencing of the viruses but when is something a variant of concern and it, what we're actually thinking about is something you know that's a lot more straightforward which is if if you already know that there's a particular genome sequence that you're looking for. And you want to know if it's spreading in your community, how much sequencing do you have to do? And where do you have to do it? And vice versa, once you've found something, once it's popped up, how many people has it spread to already? And those are just sort of statistical problems that you can answer. But then there's this sort of broader question, which is, okay, so now we have genetic sequencing, how do we know if there's a new variant of concern? And yeah, just like, when should we be alarm like i i think the naming of these things is so interesting right like a variant of concern. Like that, that sort of like highlight, like, when should we be concerned? That's like a very subjective measure to apply to something that's very analytic. So I'll, I'll talk about this from maybe a, a couple angles. So we are, and again, this is so reminiscent of things that was happening early on, but I've been joining some some calls that include scientists from across some different institutions, all of whom are looking at the spread of variants from different angles, So including epidemiologists, people who are doing the genetic sequencing, people who are looking at the the laboratory results to see if they escape different arms of the immune response, like all of this. And we're all sort of like trying to brainstorm sort of how how to grapple with these things. I think one of the really interesting things that came out of the most recent call was this really frank discussion amongst all of the scientists about like, how how do we Communicate about these things. There was a preprint article that said that they had identified a new variant of concern out of. I think this was out of California, but I don't actually recall exactly. And and, and we had this frank discussion of like, is it is it our job as individual scientists and individual research groups to apply that label of variant of concern, especially knowing that you know once you've said that you know the cat's out of the bag, and then all of a sudden you're being interviewed by a thousand different <laughs> you know media agencies trying to figure out, you know, what's going on. And you know, the, the answer that we sort of converged to is that, you know, probably probably not. You know, that's that's the job of something like the CDC or World Health Organization or public health agencies, or at least a consortium of scientists. Because what we can do is we can identify when a certain lineage of the virus is spreading more rapidly than we would expect. And that's already a very complex problem, because you have to have a sense of what you should expect. And this is something that's really driven by a lot of randomness. It depends on how much immunity there is in the population. There are different things that can be concerning about the variant, whether it spreads more easily, or whether it escapes immunity, or whether it's more severe. And all of those things look different in the epidemiology, but all of them sort of become these variants of concern that we're trying to pay attention to. One step down from that is a variant of interest. So these are starting to get sort of categorized. You know, there's this sort of sort of level of risks, right? And so that's that's sort of how, how we're thinking about them. Yeah. And, and there's no clear delineation between, you know, what these things are yet. And then pile on top of this that the ways that we're naming these variants is, and this is something else we oh, talked right. about on that call is absolutely crazy, right? We have the B117 and the B1426 and the P1 oh. and like none of these have any actual, like, you know, they, they have a genetic relevance, but they don't give us any insight as to what is actually concerning about these variants. So there's there's a lot of discussion going on about just the taxonomy and nomenclature and sort of like how we communicate about these things, both amongst ourselves as scientists and to the public. Because you're right, I mean... Viruses do what they do. They're mutating. They're changing, and that's going to happen. That has been happening. And so now that we're looking and really paying attention, we're turning up all of these different things that are spreading in ways that could be alarming, but we're not totally sure yet. And so, you know, when do you trigger that alarm? That's really, you know, a fundamental question in public health and one that we're grappling with right now.
2: Mm-hmm. Makes sense. That's great. Mark, anything to add? No, just that the. 21 Pilots song that they released during quarantine was called Level of Concern," <laughs> and I feel like that they should have called it "Very right, sure.
0: well okay you you, you, <laughs> you got choppy on that, that first part at least on the stream what, what, what was the name of the band or what was it
2: 21 Pilots
0: <laughs> I'd, I'd never heard of them 21
2: Pilots fame okay, uh, okay. All that's right, we'll, awesome. uh, we'll, we'll work on that that's, that's okay I mean that's okay that you've never heard of them but uh, but anyway well
0: <laughs> well <laughs> <what>
2: <laughs> That's that's why you yeah, guys that's are. Totally. Here, right? That's totally. That's that is now our that is, now our, kind of that that is just, now our new that is,
0: intro. That yes, is why, why I'm here. You're here yeah. and for the GoFundMe page. We really yeah. want to support you in that particular reality. You got it. Oh gosh. Oh man. Okay. So we're getting close to the end, but a couple more things I just want to chat about. And again, just a brief. Can you give us a quick distinction for, especially for people who are first listening to this this episode and have us the previous ones, a difference between variant, mutant, and strain? Because we're on the variant is is the season right now. Down the road, it might be a mutant, and I don't know about strain. I don't know if we've talked about that in the context of of COVID recently. But can you give a quick distinction between those three?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, and these terms are all sort of evolving too, as we're trying to figure out the best way to communicate about them amongst ourselves even. But the way that I think about it is that a mutant is anything that has a single mutation. So a mutant is with respect to some reference strain. And so you might have one variant, one, one you know particular <laughs> type of coronavirus that's circulating, um, and okay. a mutant would be something that differs from that in at least one genetic position. Okay. Uh, a variant is usually something that is a little bit more distantly related. It has multiple mutations. And so it is something that, yeah, it's basically just like a collection of mutations okay. within a single virus and also sort of implicit in that often we think of variants as things that have that may have a different what we call phenotype which means that it behaves a little bit differently somehow it might bind to your lung receptors a little bit more easily or something like that so usually a variant has multiple mutations and it has mutations in places that might affect the way that it behaves and so that's what we think of with a variant now strain is much more distantly related so i wouldn't call any of the things everything that sars-cov-2 is part of the same strain and to get to a different strain that's that's thing like SARS-CoV-1 or MERS or OC43 the things that cause the different common cold coronaviruses things like that so that's that's quite more distantly related the new york times defines it as 95% genetic divergence but i think that that's not very useful i think that it's <laughs> it's it's just yeah it's just something that's very different and has a different name and behaves like in a very different manner so okay
0: Good, That makes sense. And then I had no idea. I mean, I should have known. I, but, but number one, when you get a COVID test, that there's that test gives you no indication about what what variant you're actually having. Correct? We just had the discussion. So then, right. you know, if you get COVID and you, and you get positive, if I go in and get COVID next week, I'm just testing positive. I have no idea what I have, right? I mean, nobody has a clue unless it's somehow, I was one of the lucky ones, right? To like get through one of the genetic tests and, and have it
1: tested. So- we just, well, we just have yeah, so you won't know, but there is one possibility. So with the B117 variant, which is the one that emerged in the UK, it has this interesting mutation that causes it to essentially knock out one of the three primers that you use in the PCR test. Yeah. And so rather than testing positive on all three, you only test positive on two. And so that's one of the ways that we've been doing a lot of the epidemiological surveillance for this. It's because yeah. over time, you see just two of those primers light up instead of all three. And that gives you sort of a proxy measure of, of how much of this variant is spreading. We're actually really really lucky that that happened because that knockout doesn't seem to change the way that the virus behaves, but it makes it a lot easier to keep track of, but you won't hear that in, in, in your test response. You know, as long as you turn positive on one of those three, you'll get a positive, but epidemiologically it helps us a lot.
0: Okay. And you know, curious, I'm just totally random. Mark, does it, when you're going to the hospital and somebody tests positive, do you see that in the, from the lab? Mm -hmm. And then you say, Hey, that person might have it. Or is that hidden even from your wall? Like you're just like, if you're testing somebody in the hospital,
2: no, I, well, I, now I'll start paying attention to it. Cause that's not, I didn't know that. That's pretty great. I, you know, I think just out of curiosity, I do think that we can get the data about, you know, they, they break down our general, it reports out on our electronic medical record just mm-hmm. as positive or negative, but I'm positive that I'm certain that we can go and like get the, you know, which of the primers from our lab if we're interested. And so I'll, I'm, Quite interesting. All right. He you yep, heard
0: it here. Next time he's on, which might be a month from now, he's going to report back and see what he found. And <laughs> obviously with, with whatever obeying all HIPAA laws, of course, but whatever that means. Of course. <laughs> so, <Yep. laughs> okay. A few more things before we land this plane, the CDC added a few more side effects to uh, the vaccine. I'm trying to find it right now. Let me see here. Yeah, three new three new side effects. In addition to pain and swelling on the arm where the shot is administered, people might also experience redness. As for the, the systemic reaction, the CDC added muscle pain and nausea to the list. Muscle pain should not be confused with pain at the site of ejection. I'll put that in the show notes as well. Now, I noticed my, my mom got the vaccine, Stephen, and she said she also figured uh, the second round, the second round. I don't know what she did in Moderna. Or Pfizer. I think she did Moderna. The second round, she actually um, had tingling in her fingers as well. So that might, I I don't see that in the side effect, but just so you know, it happens, it's potential. So that is there. What else about the vaccine? I want to talk about big news. Biden says that by May, everyone will have access to the vaccine, which is huge news. It's awesome. It's exciting. Big statement. I don't know if we can get into this. We might get into this next week, guys, but we're going a little bit deeper about the nuances of the vaccines because I still Mm -hmm. get it. I still get the, you know what, I'm gonna hold out for Pfizer or Moderna and really kind of exposing because it's I think we're in this war right now where there was an overreaction to Johnson and Johnson, right? And I feel like in some sense there was a media correction. And maybe the media overcorrected by putting too many and maybe a little bit too much of a promise behind the reality and i think our great job is it's complicated and it's nuanced and i want to provide that to our listeners so next week well, next week let's prepare for that to help our listeners know the nuance between that just to, so they can know what they're getting into right i think that'd be an awesome thing I think that's all we have time for for now. There's a lot of things on my list, but we're gonna save all that vaccine stuff for next week. So I think it can can hold. We're already at 45 minutes in and I know these important, wonderful dudes have things to do. So we're gonna land this here. I hope you guys have an awesome, wonderful week and we will see you next Monday. All right. And also, last few things, check us out. If you want to subscribe, patreon.com slash pandemic podcast. So five dollars a month it can go a long way. One-time payment, Venmo, PayPal in the show notes. If you want to ch- if you want to chat with Steven, S-D-P-H-E-N-K-I-S-S-L-E R on Twitter. He's got a Twitter list now. Check it out. I'll put in the show notes. I follow the epidemiologist. It's fun. It's way over my head. I get really tired, but I still watch it. It's pretty awesome. <laughs> it's really, really good stuff. So check that out as well. And we'll see you guys all next week. Take care and Bye-bye.